0: Welcome back to the ADMS podcast. I'm Natalie Campbell, and in today's episode, we're revisiting another panel from the 2022 ADMS Symposium, titled Risk-Related Approaches to Regulate ADM and Decision Support Systems. In this talk, ADMS researchers Barry Wang and Jose Miguel Bello E Villarino are joined by Professor Brannson Bertrand from the University of Rennes, and Mauricia Levesque from the Berkman Klein Centre, to discuss directions of regulatory approaches to AI on a global scale and why countries reluctant to adopt these innovations could be faring in the global regulatory landscape.
1: So let's talk about risk-based AI regulation in Canada and the US. So just to provide you an overview of where I'm going today, I'll describe the Canadian and US uh, approaches to show that they're both driven by a risk-based approach to AI regulation. And then I'll unpack the stakes of risk-based regulation a little bit more. So let's start with the US. Now, what we don't have is comprehensive federal AI regulation. We have some activity on specific types of AI systems, for instance, biometric recognition, Uh, where there's a mosaic of state and local regulation. For instance, California and Massachusetts regulate biometric uh, surveillance. Illinois regulates the use of uh, AI-driven video analysis and job interviews. But those are very kind of specific uh, issues that are subject to regulation. We remain with a really fragmented legal landscape. And um, self-regulation, Somewhat fills these gaps. For instance, there's a voluntary moratorium by big tech on providing facial recognition capabilities to law enforcement. Microsoft also dropped contested emotion recognition capabilities from its products. But these are very kind of surgical interventions that really fall short of a comprehensive cross sectoral AI regulation. So we don't have that in the US. But what we do have are some pretty consistent signals promoting risk-based regulation. So the White House started thinking about AI regulation back in 2016, and one of those reports, uh, Preparing for the Future of AI, really highlighted the importance of adopting a risk-based approach to uh, AI regulation. And that's sort of a common and continuing thread. In 2020, the White House released a second uh, guidance for regulation uh, of AI intelligence applications that was uh, open for comments. And again, it highlights the importance of a risk-based approach. So what you end up with is a kind of tiered approach that is not unlike the EU's AI Act, which I'm sure we will hear more about uh, in a few minutes. So this tiered approach is uh, essentially one where the degree of risk determines the intensity of the regulatory intervention. So low-risk systems call for light-touch interventions through things like mandatory disclosures. And uh, by contrast, high-risk systems may require much more robust regulatory interventions, for instance, imposing obligations of redundant systems should AI, AI systems fail, or uh, remedies for errors and failures. So the guidance is a blueprint for modulating the intensity of regulation according to the risk level. In parallel, we have a legislation to coordinate federal agencies and resources uh, across the entire federal government to accelerate AI research and application uh, in support of economic prosperity and national security. Those are the stated goals of the National Artificial Intelligence uh, Initiative of 2021. Now, uh, this is a really uh, long and comprehensive act, but I want to highlight that it gives the mandate to the National Institute of Standards and Technology to develop a voluntary risk management framework. So again, regulatory intervention is framed in terms of risks. Um, So that's what we have. Now, what could we get? Well, there's a couple of bills on the horizon. Uh, Some are specific to Uh, particular AI technologies, including biometric recognition, others are more process-oriented. And within that second category, I want to bring to your attention the Algorithmic Accountability Act, whereby large companies should perform, or must rather, perform participatory and ongoing risk impact assessments. Specifically, they must perform ongoing testing and evaluation of privacy risks. So the spirit of this bill is really that sunlight is the best disinfectant in the sense that it forces transparency onto these large companies uh, to be more reflective of the kind of risk that their activities entail. So this in a nutshell is a very incomplete and succinct summary of some of the regulatory activity in the US to highlight that uh, one common thread running across these initiatives is a risk-based approach. Now, let me turn to Canada briefly. So there are two prongs to AI regulation in Canada. Uh, one set of rules applies to the public sector and the other set of rule applies to the private sector. The commonality between both, unsurprisingly, is that they, appro- they adopt an approach that is based on impacts, which for our purposes, I'm using interchangeably with a risk-based approach. And I'll explain a bit why later. So, Let me turn to uh, federal uh, regulation of the public sector use of AI systems. So there's a directive in place on uh, automated decision making, it's been in effect since 2020, and it regulates the deployment of AI systems in the federal public administration, so it applies to public facing services, for example, recommendations or decisions about the eligibility of people for public benefits or uh, granting immigration visas, for instance. So for full disclosure, I was part of the initial group of uh, people looking at this. I had a very small role to play, but I did want to flag it uh, in the interest of full disclosure as I'm somewhat biased. So. Um, The directive requires public agencies that are looking to deploy AI systems to undergo a, a prior algorithmic impact assessment to determine the risk level. So this impact assessment is a questionnaire, about 80 questions, to evaluate the risk inherent to the proposed deployment. The questionnaire has attracted some criticism, with scholars pointing out that some of the simplistic and binary questions are inappropriately distant from harms on the ground. Things like asking if the stakes of the decisions are very high are kind of abstract questions where a public servant making these calls may not kind of keep an ear to the ground and be able to spot, articulate, anticipate how a system will really land in the impact of communities. Uh, at any rate, the outcome of the questionnaire is a classification on, in one of four risk categories, which are meant to convey the intensity, reversibility, and duration of the impact. And the higher the level, the more requirements apply. So if I take the last one, level four, uh, one would need to undergo prior peer review, notify users that an AI system is involved, describe its training data, have a human in the loop, so decisions aren't fully automated, and importantly, include a meaningful explanation for an adverse decision. So for instance, a decision that uses an AI system to deny a benefit for service. So that's for the public sector. Moving on to the private sector, we have a new bill in town, Uh, brand new from June 2022, it's a first pass. It's going to go through more uh, parliamentary debate and hopefully public consultations. Uh, The important point I want to highlight is that it is an embodiment of a risk-based approach insofar as you can sort of draw um, low-impact systems, which are subject to kind of minimal obligations and high-impact systems, which are subject to more demanding obligations, including the ones you see on the screen, hopefully. So things like uh, mandatory harm and bias risk assessment, uh, transparency obligations. So a public description of the system, both from the manufacturer of the system and the entity using it. So again, there's some links to be made with the EU proposed AI Act, where. uh, the providers of the use and the users of the system also have different uh, transparency obligations. And uh, lastly, these higher impact systems, uh, should they incur serious harm, that harm has to be ma- uh, reported to public authorities. So a lot of the obligations in the act hinge on this high impact classification. So this is another way to say this is a risk based approach. Now, um, This isn't the focus of today's presentation and in the interest of time, I'll just briefly say that one of the issues with the bill as it stands is that a lot of the actual substance of the uh, law are yet undefined. They are delegated to rulemaking. And that is not uh, very different from some of the issues that people have with uh, technical standards being kind of the last mile implementation of AI regulation in other contexts. Um, So in the AI uh, bill in Canada, the government will basically get to define what is high impact. And um, that is sort of the core element of the law because it's like the door that one has to pass through in order to be subject to uh, the really uh, stringent obligations that I've just mentioned earlier. So just to do a quick recap, the U.S. consistently champions a risk-based approach to AI regulation. It has uh, emitted these signals and sort of guide policy guidance document. The new Algorithmic Accountability Act uh, is also an embodiment of that insofar as it imposes a privacy risk assessment. And that's just the latest development in, in, in this trajectory. As for Canada, the public sector already implements a risk-based approach with this kind of four-tiered um, Risk levels for using AI in the federal service. And the proposed bill that would apply to the private sector also has this philosophy through higher obligations for high-impact systems. So with this in mind, I want to unpack uh, a little bit what it means to engage in risk-based uh, regulation. And if somebody wants to give me a pointer on time, I think I have about five minutes left, but I'm happy to go a little bit faster that since I know we're Perfect. Thank you. Great. So what do we mean when we talk about risk-based regulation? Well, it's about modulating the intensity and the modality of regulatory intervention according to the risk level. So on screen, you see one framework here by Black and Murray. Uh, offering uh, one avenue to adapt regulation to the type of risk that you have. So we won't go through all of them, but just to take the last one at the bottom uh, row, systemic, non-compensable risk. Well, uh, this would mean highly restrictive ex ante regulation on the development and the deployment of some technology, as well as trialing. So think about, uh, GMOs, stem cell research, aviation, nuclear uh, power. So these would be pretty restrictive uh, uh, regulatory approaches, if you will. And against this backdrop, uh, I want to just kind of pause and say that there's a narrative that pits risk-based regulation as uh, opposed to a precautionary approach, as if they were completely different. And I want to push back against that a little bit. First, I'll define what that precautionary approach is. So when there is uncertainty about the risks of serious or irreversible harm, the onus is on the proponent of a technology to prove its safety. So this comes to us uh, through the environmental law space, and it could be more robust as a principle rather than a soft approach. But uh, the points that remain is you're looking at uncertainty about risks to make a decision about uh, whether to shift the onus on the proponent of the technology to prove that it's safe. and. The US has explicitly rejected the precautionary approach in its uh, stance on AI regulation, saying that it imposes an impossibly high standard that society, uh, uh, such that society will be prevented from enjoying the benefits of AI. And I want to push back against that because I think it conflates the precautionary approach with an absolute ban. So this is not what we're talking about with a precautionary approach, rather, it just says slow down, you need to positively prove safety. Uh, so it's about imposing more ex-anti safeguards, but it's not necessarily red lines like we see in the AI Act, uh, you know, with a ban on remote biometric identification by law enforcement in some contexts. Um, moreover, the precautionary approach still uses risk as a core criteria. So at a very high level, it is a risk-based approach the uh, way to decide whether or not to apply it is if there's uncertainty about the risk of serious and irreversible harm, as you see underlined here in the last row. So I think that we're we can combine the kind of traditional way of thinking about risk based frameworks and the precautionary approach under one umbrella, because they're just looking at risk from a different lens. Um, in, uh, the context of the precautionary approach, you're focusing on whether there's a, a serious or irreversible harm. Whereas if you're looking at kind of the traditional risk-based framework, it's more about whether the harm is uh, 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 individual or systemic or if it's comp- compensable or not. So this is my argument that they're more like closed close siblings than distant cousins. They may fight, but ultimately they're still in the same family. So I'm going to close uh, with this question I want to leave you with, which pertains to the cost-benefit analysis underlying the debate about risk-based regulation. If we zoom out one level, risks are just part of the cost in the cost-benefit analysis. The real issue is the legitimacy of pitting costs against benefits, mostly uh, when the benefits are economic and the costs come to individual rights or environmental risks and so on. So the real question becomes, are there risks not worth taking? Are there unacceptable costs, even in the light of tremendous economic benefits? And this echoes a common civil society criticism that a risk-based approach is really incompatible with a rights-based approach. What I think they're saying is, you cannot take any risks with regards to rights. Ultimately, a cost-benefit analysis that dilutes rights as the cost of doing business is incompatible with this categorical conception of rights. You cannot take risks uh, when it comes to violating rights just a little for innovation's sakes because rights are non-negotiable. They cannot be weighted against other interests like industry growth. Last point equities, let's think about who bears the brunt of the cost and who bears the benefits. Um, so I've been a little bit critical of the US stance. so I'll try to balance it out by pointing out that the draft guidance uh, of 2020 on AI regulation invites regulators to consider precisely this, to consider the distributional effects of AI regulation. And that is consistent with asking who bears the cost and who reaps the benefits. Given the crucial propensity to experiment some AI systems on vulnerable vulnerable populations, uh, undocumented migrants, low-skilled workers, incarcerated people, et cetera, it's really crucial to think about who is going to be bearing the cost of uh, innovation. Even if there's a net benefit overall, if it's always the same uh, sub-population that there's cost, this should give us some pause. So with this, I will pause myself Um, and uh, hand it over to uh, Jose Miguel. If you have questions, comments, uh, this is my information. Thank you.
2: That was brilliant. Thanks so much. I cannot (laughs) agree more with everything you said, except for the transparency being the best disinfectant. As someone who has researched corruption, (laughs) it is a disinfectant that works if you don't have anything else, but there are much better ones, so. So Brandeis was not right about that. Um, so now we go back to the room to listen. <laughs> okay.
3: uh, So uh, <clears throat> the European Union, um, it's now uh, leading a global uh, digital policy. So there is a data governance, trust, IA, regulation of platform, digital services, digital market, cybersecurity, all these uh, areas are linked. The, the goal of um, trusted um, uh, IA must be achieved uh, through several texts, not uh, just the IA Act. So, the uh, European objective is to find um, a balance between two requirements. Um, first, ensure that the IA system placed in the European market are safe and respect of fundamental rights. And the second point is um, facilitate the development of a European single market for IA and uh, prevent the fragmentation of the European market. So the... IA Act, the European IA Act, is a complement of uh, uh, other regulation, especially uh, on data regulation. So data governance is an essential uh, prerequisite for IA regulation in Europe. The the main idea is to, to regulate the design of IA system upstream to enable widespread use so the consumer must have confidence in these uh, systems to use them. Uh, but uh, obviously, innovation should not be limited too much either, even in, uh, in Europe. So Europe uh, finds a balance around these two points, two aspects. On one hand, um, organizing access to quality and reliable data to enable uh, development of um, secure IA system. And in the other end, regulating IA systems that present risk of uh, bias and uh, discrimination. And I will mention these uh, two points in term. First, uh, the text uh, upstream the IA Act that frames the data governance and then the risk-based approach of the European IA Act. So the first point, um, upstream the IA Act, the European data regulation. Uh, European policy is beginning to take shape for the opening on the circulation of data. Uh, economically, the data is non rival goods. So It means the economic value of data becomes exponential the more it is crossed with other data sets. Moreover, uh, it is not always those who hold the data who are able to extract the value from it. So the European political objective is therefore to circulate data to ensure that they are shared. So for the European Union, the challenge is to open and organize the sharing of different data sets. This access to data shows a complementarity between the IA regulation and uh, other uh, European regulation adopted in the digital field. The idea is the same. Trusted IA is based on quality data. So promoting trusted IA is is fully linked to the Data Governance Act and to the um, open data policy. The goal is to establish establish trust mechanism for reuse, sharing, and pooling of high-quality data the european union is aware that um, uh, we have been left behind the capture of personal data by a digital platform foreign digital platform we are we were um, able to limit the scope of the problem with um, gdpr but uh, the personal data battle is lost for europe so The European legislator is therefore now focusing its effort on non personal data, public data, industrial data, etc. The bet is uh, that uh, that, uh, this kind of data, non personal data, will be more important for the development of the IA than personal data. Um, uh, the the market regulation, and also involve uh, policy competition, competition policy. (laughs) The objective here is to limit the massive capture of data on their exclusive exploitation by digital platform. So this um, objective is uh, embodied in uh, two texts. The P2B regulation initiated um, uh, data regulation of a digital platform. No, on the the famous DMA, the Digital Markets Act, which include uh, provi- provision on uh, data governance too. So the idea is that um, keepers benefit from uh, access to large amount of data that they collect when providing digital services. And the DMA organize effective and immediate access to data generated when using digital platforms to prevent gatekeepers from limiting industry innovation. For the development of high-risk IA system, This text tries to make high-quality data sets available. In addition, the European Union wants to create European common data space to to facilitate uh, this data sharing. Uh, The challenge here is uh, the same, (laughs) is uh, to enable reliable, accountable, and non-discriminatory access to High quality data for training, validating, and testing IA system. For example, at the moment, the European Union is setting up an European health data space. My second point is um, um, the European approach, uh, the regulation modulated by, uh, by the risk. In this context, uh, the European Union proposed a general approach to IA. The choice is a general approach and not a sectorial one. However, this uh, regulation is uh, asymmetric. It does not concern all the IA systems. It is a graded approach uh, according to risk. IA applications are classified according their level of uh, risk. So there were other uh, regulation uh, choice possible. The, the first would have been to adopt an uh, adopt a sector-by-sector sector approach. Uh, this kind of uh, sectorial uh, logic would have consist, for example, in uh, differentiating the regulation of uh, IA according to whether it is uh, applied to, to health issue, to uh, student grading, to the evaluation of a uh, person's ability to repair a bank loan, for example. A sectorial uh, regulation uh, would have... Um, 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 uh, consists in uh, considering, for example, that um, medical matter are, uh, by definition, uh, uh, important risk. Except that a more refined approach has been favored. Uh, uh, we can uh, consider that um, managing uh, hospital at point- appointment system uh, in automated way does not have the same impact uh, as using IA for diagnostic or decision support. So, this sea load, this sector based logic, has been discarded in favor of a risk based approach. You tell me when I, because I'm to, you, <laughs> fully lost in, in time this morning. So, you
2: have to listen another five minutes.
3: Okay. <laughs> Um, uh, Certainly, there is uh, some uh, specific rules uh, for IA in other uh, European texts, for autonomous cars or for aviation, for example, but essentially the idea is to have a general approach covering whole area. I would like to point out that um, there is an exception for military field, which is not governed by the, the text. Another legislative choice would have been to set mandatory requirements for all the IA system. So regardless um, of the level of risk they present, each normative option uh, was assessed for economic and social impact. And the preferred option is regulate the IA risk system only. The challenge here of this uh, uh, risk-based approach was to reach the best conciliation between respect for fundamental rights on IA security, on one hand, on uh, limiting uh, compliance costs, on the other. So the risk assessment must di- distinguish IA system between between uh, uses of IA that create uh, unacceptable risk High risk, on low or minimal risk. So there is a. Well, uh, so it's maybe too much, but uh, European texts I uh, are very strong. Uh, so there is a prohibition of a certain uh, practice. Uh, for example, um, I don't. Everything. The um, uh, kind of practice, uh, practice uh, prohibited is, for example, um, IA system who, that exploit vulnerabilities due to the age or physical or mental disability of a group of people. And um, IA Act also prohibits uh, IA uh, social scoring um, uh, by uh, public authorities, by public authorities only. And uh, finally, uh, the use of uh, real time, remote biometric identification system in public area for law enforcement purpose is in principle prohibited. In principle, because there is um, there are many exceptions. Uh, for a, example, if it's necessary to search uh, certain uh, victim of crime, uh, such as missing uh, children or for prevention of uh, terrorist attack. For IA-Risk systems, there is specific uh, requirement. Uh, the, the ia risk uh, are those that present significant risk to the health, uh, safety, or fundamental rights of people. The, the classification of uh, an IA-System as uh, high risk uh, uh, um, is um, based on the purpose of the IA system. So we have two broad category of uh, high risk IA system. The first one is um, IA system intent intent for use as a safety component of product. Uh, IA system used for machine or medical devices, for example. And the second category is um, autonomous IS systems that raise question about respect for fundamental rights. Um, there is a list which may change. So the list is <laughs> substantial. <laughs> for uh, any example, um, management of uh, critical infrastructure, uh, road traffic, electricity, uh, etc. education, uh, for example, I system intend to be used to determine access to educational institution or for, to evaluate students, uh, access to public services and uh, social benefits, law enforcement uh, authorities, migration, asylum, and uh, border control management. And uh, last one, Administration of Justice and uh, Democratic Processes. So um, I want just to highlight, highlight if I have two minutes, (laughs) Uh, there is some doubt have been raised about the appropriateness of an exhaustive list of uh, IA risk systems that exclude uh, certain use, deemed uh, risky, Uh, such as uh, insurance, uh, premium determination. And it was also pointed out that um, this list did not take sufficient account of more general or collective risk, risk to a group of individuals or risk for society as a whole. the text uh, sets requirements for uh, a high risk I system with respect to data governance, uh, documentation and record keeping, uh, transparency and um, human control, robustness, accuracy, security, etc. There is a minimum requirement, uh, so, there is a significant flexibility. IA system providers can, in some way, choose how to apply, uh, how to comply with this uh, requirement. Uh, There is also um, uh, specific rules, uh, transparency rule for um, uh, IA system intended to interact with uh, physical people to emotion recognition and biometric categorization system to IA system uh, used to generate or manipulate image or audio or video content, the deep fake. And the last, uh, no, the last category, it's for low or minimal risk, IAs. Uh, it, there will uh, there will essentially be self regulated through um, code of conduct. So I'm stopped here. Sorry for my English and uh, thank you for your attention. Thanks so much.
2: <laughs> it was great because it was also the first part was I think very important because when we look at the regulation in the EU, we tend to forget that data, quality data, which is non-personal data. We are always looking at the GDPR and we forget all these new uh, rules that are coming to make all the the type of data available and what they can do with it, and the quality data as part of the regulation of AI. So Barry, as he goes.
4: All right, so today I'm gonna talk about a, I'm gonna talk through some of the approaches to AI regulation in China and There's so much happening and I just want to provide a high level overview for everyone so that you can kind of make sense of what's happening in China. And I'll first start by giving some background on Chinese AI policy, because I think it's important to contextualize the recent regulatory developments um, with the policy in mind. So the most important policy document to be aware of is the New Generation Artificial Intelligence Development Plan, the AIDP issued in uh, 2017 by the State Council, which is the chief administrative body in China. And prior to this document, AI policy was scattered and treated as one of many technologies. And this was the first document where AI was treated as its own technology vertical and kind of has a, centralized um, uh, centralized planning around artificial intelligence. And the AIDP um, can be split into, the, the strategic objectives of the AIDP can be split into three dimensions, geopolitical, fiscal, and legal and ethical. And it sets out three key timeframes to achieve certain goals. And I know the text is a bit small, but essentially by 2030, um, China wants to be the world innovation center for artificial intelligence. At a fiscal level, um, China wants a domestic core AI industry to be worth one trillion yuan. And in terms of legal and ethical, they wanna refine and complete laws and standards relating to emerging technology. So in terms of the implementation of the AI DP, there's often a misunderstanding that the implementation will be centrally enacted, but in reality, the implementation of the strategic objectives Happens at local, uh, happens through collaboration with private companies and local governments, and in this view, the IDP can be viewed as a document which nudges and coordinates, and also de-risks and actively incentivizes local AI projects. And the way this is played out in China is through the establishment of AI pilot zones, which can be akin to a regulatory sandbox approach. And currently there are 17 AI development zones, each with their own specialization. Um, For example, Shenzhen, which is the frontier city of development in China, their specialization is advanced uh, research and development and the production cycle of artificial intelligence. Um, Whereas cities like Hefei deals with speech recognition. And in addition to these AI pilot zones, there are also um, national champions, private companies, which have been tasked with specific applications. For example, Baidu, which has been tasked with autonomous driving. And through this approach, um, there is a sentiment that AI is a rapidly changing technology and that to achieve the strategic objectives of the AIDP, there needs to be a process of iteration, experimentation. And to echo a famous Chinese saying, it's very much similar to the process of crossing a river by feeling the stones. <clears throat> so moving on to the AI regulatory environment, I think the best way to make sense of what's happening in China in terms of regulation is through the different branches of the Chinese bureaucracy and often competing bureaucracy and what initiatives they are focused on. So first we have the Cyberspace Administration of China. They are the internet regulator and censor of China, and they have quite a high level of maturity in their work. And they're mainly focused on rules for online algorithm uh, with a focus on public opinion. And next we have the China Academy of Information and Communication Technology. they are an influential scientific research institution under the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. And they've been really focused on developing tools and certifications around this concept of trustworthy AI, which is relevant to risk management. And next we have the Ministry of Science and Technology. Um, and their main focus is on developing ethical norms and implementing these norms within company boards and institutions. And finally, we have the standardization administration of China, um, which is authorized by the State Council to complete the process of AI standardization. And the remaining of my presentation will be uh, kind of based on the structure uh, I've outlined here. So regulation of online algorithms, so there has been quite significant developments in this space in china and the most important act to highlight is the internet information service algorithm recommendation management provisions like all of the acts are quite long so i'll just call this the management provisions and this has been issued by the cyberspace administration of china and is in force since march this year and does carry with it civil penalty provisions so the management provision applies to internet information services which is quite a broad umbrella term that includes social media platforms, e-commerce, ride hailing and algorithm recommendation technology is defined as algorithms that um, push information to users and includes recommendation algorithms, search rank, style algorithms, personalization algorithms, et cetera. And The management provisions can be broken down into four sections. So the first section is the norms for internet service, internet information service providers. And these norms include requirements for service providers to um, constantly assess their model, ensure data quality and optimize for fairness, uh, optimize for transparency and accountability. Uh, The second chapter deals with uh, protections of users. So in addition to general protections, the management provision highlights uh, a few distinct categories, and this includes the elderly. And with the elderly, there is a focus on protecting them from scams. And then there's minors with a focus on mental health and also gig economy workers, um, which are additional categories that have been highlighted in the management provisions. The third section deals with the supervision and management of internet services, and finally, section four deals with uh, legal liabilities um, of violating the provisions. And I can go on and on about each of the specific articles, but for the purpose of this presentation and to offer some comparative insight, I just wanna highlight two specific um, articles. So the first one is, the first one is article six, which is essentially the primary norm for internet service providers. And I wanna highlight The, as part of this norm, um, service providers are encouraged to vigorously disseminate positive energy or zheng neng And I think this is a a confusing concept when it's translated directly, because what does it mean, right? So I wanna provide two stories that may give some insight. So the term was first um, used as a political slogan and first used by Xi Jinping in 2012. Um, But the first story I wanna highlight is um, the term has gained quite a lot of popularity as a hashtag on social media platforms. And recently TikTok uh, or the Chinese version Douyin has implemented a section for positive energy on its application. And the section originally started as has originally started with quite a political tone and there were party members posting in that section but over time it developed quite organically and the content that started dominating these uh this channel ranged from people with disabilities sharing their experiences all the way to workers eating lunch with their dog talking about um, their lives so i think the the way this term is used is quite flexible. Um, And the second story I wanna share is uh, more of a personal one, but open to interpretation. But um, I was having dinner with my mom, like a few few months back. And then out of nowhere, she uses a term or positive energy. And I was researching this, so I was quite surprised. I was like, um, yeah, where, where, like, what does this term mean? Um, Where do you, like, where do you hear it from? And she just said that, is generally a good vibe and I saw people using it online so I hope that provides some insight into what this concept may be and um, I found it quite interesting so the second article I want to highlight is article 23 because I think this is interesting from a comparative perspective especially when we talk think about risk management and the way risk management categorizes um, how we manage AI systems so This article essentially requires AI management systems to be graded and categorized based on public opinion properties and social mobilization capabilities, in addition to the scale of the users, the type of content. And this likely reflects the focus of the cyberspace administration of China and their emphasis on public opinion. Um, But it's more to keep in mind that this only applies to online algorithm uh, online algorithms. So the other provision I want to highlight, and I think it's important to keep in mind when viewing the management provisions, is the content ecosystem provision, which was enacted in 2020. But within the provision, it uh, deals—it also deals with algorithm recommendation technology, and specifically the type of content that's allowed um, to be promoted, resisted, prohibited. Uh, in these algorithmic systems. And it does also carry legal liability in the form of suspension of service. So moving on to frameworks for trustworthy AI systems. So trustworthy AI systems have been largely championed by the CAICT, and it's essentially, the way they've conceptualized it is very similar to the US and EU, essentially trying to operationalize ethical governance principles through a risk management approach. And their formulation of trustworthiness um, divides trust with, like, focuses on the characteristics which make up trustworthiness. And in here, you can see reliability, controllability, transparency, and explainability, data protection, clear responsibility, diversity, and tolerance are uh, the characteristics that um, form trustworthiness, in the opinion of the C-I- CAICT. And they've also in their white paper proposed a framework for AI uh, for trustworthy AI, and it's quite overwhelming. So I'm going to I'll break it down, but um, it's a proposed framework because it's part of a white paper and there's no mandatory requirement for, to follow this framework or use this framework. Um, so breaking down this framework at the high level, we can see that the characteristics of trustworthiness are mapped and the level below is technology, a trustworthy supporting technology, which are technologies to do with explainability, to do with privacy protection, and to do with the stability of algorithmic decision making. And one level down, we have essentially the corporate practices that make up trustworthy systems. And the Chinese approach is very similar and takes a life cycle approach to trustworthy AI. And in addition to or trust, a life cycle approach um, focused on the design, the testing and the operation um, of AI systems and what we can do to mitigate these characteristics of trustworthiness um, or improve them. And there's also a focus on corporate culture and management mechanisms. And finally, we have industry trustworthy practices, which can essentially be broken down into three components, which is standards, um, assessments, and guarantees. And by achieving those three, um, that makes up industry trustworthiness practices. Uh, So AI ethics principles, um, I think in the interest of time, I'll just touch on this real quick. So the governance principles have been I'll just highlight a few points. I think the AI governance norms have been established in China through quite a multi-stakeholder process with a lot of input from the private sector and from um, academia in China. And the governance principles outlined in 2009 have since been um, formalized into the ethical norms, which is released in 2021. And the interesting thing about the ethical norms, apart from the uh, the basic norms outlined here, is that it divides ethical norms into four distinct categories. There are management norms, which are different to R&D norms, which are different to supply norms, and also use norms. And finally, I wanna talk about AI standardization because um, standardization uh, will become, I think, Will be a very important will have a very important role in influencing the development of specific uh, AI technology, and standardization in China has been carried out by the Standardization Administration, and under the guidelines, um, their objective by 2021 is to clarify the top-level standards, and by 2023 to develop standards for core applications, and. In the document, they've outlined a AI standards architecture, which is also quite overwhelming, but I'll read through what each of these are. So over here at the high level uh, on the left-hand side, we have what they call the foundational commodities. And these are essentially terminology um, testing methods that can be applied to all the rest of the architecture. And then B is supporting technologies and products. C is foundational software and hardware platforms, um, including smart chips, cloud computing. D is key common technologies. And this is where machine learning knowledge graphs sit. And from B to D, this is essentially uh, what makes AI work. So the hardware all the way to the software. And then E, we have key field technologies. So this is natural language processing. Um, F is products and services. So uh, smart robots, smart terminals, smart services. And then G is industry applications, like smart manufacturing, autonomous vehicles. And uh, D to G can be thought of as uh, the products and services and the outputs of AI. And finally, we have H, which deals with security and ethics. So just some final observations on the standardization process. I just wanna add is in China, there are currently uh, national reforms in standardization. China wants to shift towards a more liberal standardization policy, which has um, private sector input and government input, um, like a, a more equal distribution between private sector input and government input. And this will likely have a role to play in the AI standardization framework. And the other thing I'll just want to highlight when we can compare this to what is happening in the US and EU is that it seems that China's uh, AI standards architecture is quite quite pragmatic and deals with the whole production cycle of artificial intelligence, as opposed just to being limited to the software aspect. And that's the end of my presentation i hope uh, there's some insight that has been thank been- you remember
2: i suppose we always um we have probably better access to materials from the us and and the eu normally after so we tend to forget what is going on in china and in terms of a standardization which i take the opportunity to note that we have a project in the Cindy node on a standard comparative process of a standardization between Uh, US, EU, and and China, so if anyone wants to participate, just let us know, definitely, and so we tend to forget about China, so the work of Barry is extremely useful, and to be honest, something that I don't think, the knowledge that he has in his hand these days is not, it becomes very handy, but it's all uh, uh, quite exceptional Uh in the Australian context.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the ADMS podcast. Visit our YouTube channel at admscenter.org forward slash YouTube for more session recordings from the 2022 symposium.